welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhry. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's tale is about a sickness so nasty and contagious, nobody is safe. Please enjoy Pandemic. Have you ever had a disturbing urge, something that you just knew would be the end of you? Of course you have. Everyone has had the feeling of being in a high place with the urge to jump. How simple and easy to end it all in an instant. But few ever do because that feeling is only ever a possibility and a possibility by itself is harmless. But what if the feeling that started as a possibility suddenly became something more? What if it evolved into a need, something deep and burning inside that then morphed into an obsession? Tracy had an obsession. She just didn't know it yet. It was only a feeling, not even an urge, not even a need, not yet. It began with her sitting on her back porch enjoying her coffee on a Sunday morning and opening up her phone simply to pass the time. For a moment, she thought about reading a book, but she was too distracted. She thought about simply gazing into her backyard, but for some reason she didn't think she'd be able to sit for that long with nothing but quiet to occupy her mind. So she took out her phone and she scrolled and she read and an idea latched onto her brain. The Marauders. The stories were early, the reports unconfirmed, but Tracy thought it was better to be safe than sorry, right? Of course it was. When you read a story about a roving band of maniacs that was prowling the countryside, breaking into homes, taking what they wanted, killing who they wanted, this couldn't be true, could it? Tracy followed the links. She clicked on articles, read posts. Before she knew it, hours had passed. Hours of clicking, of linking, and she couldn't quite remember how she'd ended up down this rabbit hole. Was it something a friend of a friend posted? An anonymous warning? She wasn't sure what had started it all. There was a distant memory of a shape, of a voice whispering in her ear, someone telling her this information, but she couldn't remember who or how exactly they said it. It was more of a thought than an articulated sentence. The idea of fear. A scene, an image of marauders rampaging in her head. But whence the source? She couldn't remember where the idea first came from. It just felt it had been with her forever. That she had known about this danger, always. But she knew that couldn't be right. She'd only just read about them. Tracy didn't waste too much time on the thought, on the where or the why. Not when the potential price for inaction was so high. All she knew was that there was danger, and she needed to prepare. When her neighbors asked her what she was doing, bringing some of her yard furniture inside, she told them nervously about the marauders, told them they'd better do the same. They looked at her like she was crazy, a strange woman standing there, babbling incoherently through chattering teeth about a mob of outsiders roaming upstate New York. When did her teeth start chattering? It didn't matter, must have just been nerves. What mattered was that she knew the truth. She had been warned, and she was now doing the warning. Her neighbors could heed it if they wanted. 
Seclusion didn't save them from infection, just as it could not have saved Tracy. What was spreading was not something so simple as a bacterium or virus, not something that could be treated, that could eventually, with the proper science, be cured. Because how would you possibly cure a malignant idea? And what other explanation, if not an idea, could you give to what it was that affected the secluded convent in the Carpathian Mountains? It came first for Sister Margaret. She blamed it on an intrusive, impure thought. And intrusive it was, yes, though she did not know from where it came. All she knew for certain was that she was now possessed by a deep and mighty need. A need that she tried to put off as long as she could. She tried not to think about it, but it seemed the idea found other ways to leave her body. She bounced her leg and chattered her teeth, and when Sister Margaret could not hold it in any longer, she woke her sisters in the middle of the night when she began howling at the moon. Margaret could not explain it even to herself, even as she paced her room and continued to throw her head back and howl as long and loud as she possibly could. But somehow it made sense for her to do so. On some deep, primal level, she felt this was what she needed to do, in the same way she knew she needed to eat when she was hungry, but she could not explain why. The rest of the sisters asked Margaret where this strange behavior had come from, what possessed her to do something like this. In a brief moment of lucidity, Margaret said someone must have told her to do it, forced her, because she could not possibly have thought of something so strange on her own. But when she was pressed about the identity of such a person, of how they could have possibly made their way into a secluded mountain convent, Sister Margaret could not remember face nor name. When she searched her memories to figure out where this could have come from, there was something, but she could not see it properly. Whatever it was, it was like she was seeing it out of her peripheral vision. There, but just out of sight. It was a voice without words that whispered to Margaret inside her head, just like what had wormed its way into Tracy's head. The sisters came to the only conclusion that a group of secluded nuns could have. Sister Margaret's condition was the work of the devil, and so they prayed on it. Fearing she might hurt herself, they took everything from Sister Margaret's room except for her mattress. They locked her inside, as they locked themselves inside their own rooms. They had no way of knowing, but prayer could not stop the idea that had taken root in their heads. Being alone with their thoughts only made it worse. The more the sisters prayed on it, the more time they devoted to the strange and horrible idea, and the more power they gave it. Invisible, unimaginable, safe within the deepest recesses of the sisters' brains, the malignant idea feasted on their attention. It grew fat like a grub in the dark, like unseen mold beneath floorboards, each moment of thought devoted to it making it stronger. Free from any bodily burdens, the idea stalked the sisters in the night, claiming them one by one. It wormed its way into each of their brains, coiled around them slowly, definitively, its grip tightening and tightening with each passing thought, with each moment the sisters devoted to it. They tried to fight it off, but the sound that filled the convent in the middle of the night proved that it was a losing battle. Slowly, the sound of prayer ceased, and it was replaced with the incessant clacking of chattering teeth and howling coming from room after room. 
It only took a few nights for each and every one of the sisters to devote themselves fully to the idea, for them to find themselves pacing their rooms and howling incessantly at the rising sun. Tracy hurried back into her home and broke up her furniture. She moved the heavier pieces in front of doors as barricades, nailed some of the smaller ones across the windows and boarded them up, shutting out all light. She spent all afternoon grunting and heaving, pushing couches around the room and chairs under doorknobs and draping blankets over windows. They wouldn't get to her if they couldn't see her. That was the idea. Tracy tested the durability of a piece of table she'd nailed into the window, found it sturdy, and then flopped onto the floor. She was tired. She wanted to be done. But for just a moment, she saw her neighbors through the thin slit of window she left unblocked. They were all standing there, all looking in her direction, all clearly wondering what was going on with her. At first, Tracy felt angry, wondered at their ignorance, how they could stand there like that and just not do anything. But then her next thought was more altruistic. What if the mob gets to them? What if the mob gets everyone? Tracy knew what she had to do. She fumbled through broken pieces of furniture and looked for her phone so that she could spread the word. And that thing inside her grew ever stronger. It started simply enough, as an urge, an urge to dance. There was little thought preceding the urge, barely the mental formation of the word dance, before the action, the movement, the gyration, the sweating, the exertion sprung into life. The urge came to a woman named Frau Trophia in Strasbourg, Alsace, in what is now France, in the year of our Lord, 1518. Frau could identify the urge she had, but could not for the life of her remember where it had come from or why. It was a scandalous urge. Dancing? In public? For reasons none other than she simply felt like it? 1518 was not that kind of time, nor Frau that kind of woman. Distantly, as if it were a dream, she thought she remembered someone whispering the idea to her. For the longest time, Frau tried to suppress her strange desire to dance, but it was like a fungus, some horrible mold that spread like rot the harder she tried to control it. The more she kept it in the dark, the more she tried to bury it, the stronger it became. It forced itself upon her waking moment in ways she didn't suspect. She found herself bouncing her foot at the table when she was supposed to be working, slapping a hand down onto her own knee to keep it still. She found herself chattering her teeth at night when she was supposed to be sleeping or saying her prayers, clapping her hand over her mouth to cover the noise. She knew that the urge to dance was trying to escape her body somehow, to get out of her in unexpected ways. Under normal circumstances, Frau might have thought, like the sisters in the convent, that she was possessed, that these strange thoughts that entered her mind were the product of demonic forces. She was, after all, a religious woman, and these were religious times. But something about that explanation seemed off, seemed wrong. Something told her this wasn't as simple as the work of the devil. Finally, when she knew she could resist it no longer, Frau began dancing. The urge had taken up too much room in her mind, obliterated everything else that mattered, and it left her with only the thought to dance in the middle of the street on a Monday afternoon when she was supposed to be heading to the market. 
Frau had been carrying something with her, what she did not know nor did she care anymore, when suddenly she dropped it. Her teeth that had been chattering for the past few days finally stopped as her legs began to move. That thought, that urge, that obsession finally finding the proper outlet it had desired for so long. People stopped and stared, but the part of Frau that would have once cared, that would have felt embarrassed at her strange actions, was now completely gone. All that mattered was the movement. Once the onlookers in the market got over their shock, someone attempted to ask her what was wrong, what was she doing? But Frau didn't hear them. She was too far gone, the urge to dance consuming all of her mind. She was no longer sure where she ended and where that urge began, so she certainly was not cognizant of when others began to join her in the dance. A nearby woman, the first onlooker who attempted to help her, reached out, tried to gently touch Frau on the shoulder to shake her from her reverie. But the woman never even made contact. Her hand hovered about a foot from Frau's gyrating form before she, too, was infected. It was in her hand first, she was sure, despite never having touched the woman. It felt like a transfer, like an invisible pressure. She could feel the urge in her arm and her hand running up her shoulder. Something told her she needed to move it, the hand, the arm, to a beat, and before the urge even reached the rest of her body, her arm was moving. The onlooker was aware of a bag of vegetables in her other hand, but she dropped them, just like Frau's forgotten load, as the urge raced through the rest of her limbs and she joined Frau in dancing. She wasn't the only one. That invisible pressure, that unseen infection, traveled through the crowd, infecting onlookers one by one, seemingly at random. Proximity had nothing to do with it. A woman at the back end of the crowd started chattering her teeth and a moment later was spasming her way forward through the crowd towards the other dancers. A man nearby suddenly screamed aloud as if he'd been holding this feeling in his entire life before he ran forward and jumped into the middle of the throng, gyrating and spinning harder than any of them. Soon half of the crowd was moving to a chorus that only their ears could hear. It grew and multiplied more and more people dancing, not just in the square, but in their homes, in the streets, the strange plague urge spreading all over Strasbourg. Frau was the first to die, to dance herself to death, exhaustion obvious on her face as she crumpled to the ground, a pleading look of horror that said she wanted to stop, but she needed to keep going. And then they dropped like flies after her, all over Strasbourg, people crumpling from sheer exhaustion until the streets were choked with the bodies of dead and exhausted dancers. Plague doctors, men in their thick, bird-beaked uniforms, could find no evidence of diseases of any kind, only proof that the dancers had all suffered from exhaustion, sometimes fatally, and none of the survivors could properly explain why they'd done what they'd done and where the urge had come from. Once Tracy finished boarding up her windows and the two doors leading to the outside, she crouched in her basement behind yet another barricaded door, monitoring message groups to see if the mob had been spotted in her neighborhood. There was no report of them online, but there was word of mouth. Reddit posts, tweets, blurry pictures, 
but nothing from news outlets yet. That was a ploy, though. She knew it. The media was in on it. Tracy strained to listen for police sirens and heard none. But she knew that that didn't mean the marauders weren't out there. In fact, she was sure she could hear them roaming her neighborhood, torches and pitchforks in hand. She thought she could hear their screams and shouts, the crackles of the fires that they lit, the stomping of their boots as they crossed from yard to yard, searching for people like her. And so she sat, bent over her phone and laptop, and sent out message after message, alerting every group chat she was a part of, posting in message boards and across her social media, that they were there, outside her house, that everyone had to protect themselves and that no one was safe. Everyone who saw her messages believed her, because she believed herself. And like her, they strained their ears at the sounds that they were sure that they heard, locked their doors, and loaded their weapons, ready for the outsiders. The revolver that Tracy owned, the one that her father bought her because she was a woman living alone, and such a thing was very dangerous in this kind of world, sat in her lap, ready to use as she continued to send warnings to the world online. All the while, as she sat alone in the dark, Tracy never realized that the spores of her infection spread outwards, while other pathogens flowed into her. There was nothing funny about it, about anything really, but one of the girls in the back of the class laughed anyway. That was all it took. It was an ordinary Tuesday in an ordinary classroom in an ordinary small town in Alabama, and a 10th grade girl, Jeannie White, suddenly burst into laughter in the middle of her teacher's explanation of To Kill a Mockingbird. The entire class abruptly ground to a halt and the students turned in their chairs, eagerly waiting, like many school children do, for the moment someone was about to get in big trouble. Jeannie just sat there, taking in the stares. It had started simply enough like any other laughter, a tickle in her stomach that moved up to her chest into her mouth, her teeth chattered as she tried to hold it in, but for some reason that she couldn't understand, she felt the need to let it go. Even now, with everyone looking at her, she could barely keep her giggles under control. Jeannie put her hands over her mouth, but it didn't help a bit. She laughed uncontrollably through chattering teeth. Her legs bounced and her shoulders shook like the laughter was trying to find some other way out of her body. Jeannie's teacher loudly announced that this was quite inappropriate, and Jeannie, through those stifled giggles, chattering teeth, and bouncing feet, apologized. But she couldn't make any of it stop. Something was funny. She just couldn't remember what. When asked to explain herself, Jeannie simply could not. She tried to bite down on her tongue on the inside of her cheek, but the laughter still kept bubbling out from between her fingers through lips that just could not remain closed. It occurred to her that maybe holding in the laughter was making it worse. So after a moment of decision and desperation for it to be over, for the class to move on, she released her grip. There was the long burst of unbridled laughter, like she expected, a momentary horror she knew she'd have to endure just to make sure it ended, but it never did. It never trailed off. It did not go away. Jeannie tried her best to close her mouth to cover herself, but now the dam was open and she could do nothing but laugh. The rest of the class sat and stared and as they looked closer, they saw something in Jeannie's eyes, something that made them sidle away, 
pulling away their chairs and desks as if suddenly she had become a leper. Her brows had become furrowed and her face strained. Jeannie held on to the edges of her desk as her breath came in ever more ragged gasps, squeezing in and out between the fits of laughter. And suddenly, that made someone else in the class laugh. Brian Wilson in the front row suddenly cackled and then quickly slapped his hand over his mouth as if doing it fast enough would hide it. Of course, it did not. And then all eyes swiveled from Jeannie to him. With his hands over his mouth, his laughter ceased, but his jaw still bobbed harshly up and down, teeth chattering behind the shield of his fingers. The teacher began to reprimand him, turning a scolding eye towards Brian, but immediately the strange symptoms rippled outwards from him, infecting students with chattering teeth and bobbing legs and now tapping fingers too, all trying to hold in the same uncontrollable laughter. The laughter quickly moved beyond Jeannie White's classroom, beyond Brian Wilson and all the other children and even the teacher herself, who had begun to chuckle for a reason she could not fathom. The imperceptible thing that had perpetuated the laughter stalked through the halls of the school like a ghost. It drifted from classroom to classroom, began with tapping legs and chattering teeth, and then everyone, children and adults, were all laughing. And so, as the building became filled with every conceivable sound of laughter, of sputtering and coughing and hyperventilating and snorting, there was nothing to do but dismiss them. The children took their inexplicable laughter home with them. And from there, it spread. Jeannie White passed by her father on her way inside the house, still in fits of laughter. She didn't speak to him nor he to her. With his head under the hood of his truck, he realized too late that she'd come and gone. He chuckled to himself, remembering briefly when he was a child, how he did his best to stay away from his parents too. But the chuckling refused to die down as he reached around the engine of the car. Though he really didn't think that the memory, that comparison, was that funny at all. Nevertheless, he continued to laugh to himself. Brian Wilson's parents were waiting for him when he returned from school. They'd heard from dozens of angry and frantic messages on the school group chat what had happened at school that day. But as much as they wanted to, they were unable to maintain any level of seriousness or authority as their child came into the house. In fact, as Brian walked past them, he found his parents standing in the kitchen, their teeth violently chattering as they tried to maintain themselves. Through covered mouths, they told him to go to his room, and then they burst into laughter. Within days, half of the state was laughing through chattering teeth. Tracy sat in the dark now, all the lights turned off, certain that even the faint glow of a single light bulb from a narrow basement window would draw them. She pulled a blanket over her head as she bent over her laptop, reading and clicking and reading and clicking and reading and clicking. She read a story about a man who ran a red light because red, to him, suddenly meant go. A video of the man showed him babbling about how, on that morning, he woke up with the knowledge that red meant go. Where had he heard it? He vaguely recalled someone telling him so, but he couldn't quite place who, and he couldn't quite place where. But he has somehow come to take this for a fact. He remembered that, and he thought it must be true, and for reasons he couldn't define, but which nevertheless made sense to him. What he thought of as red all of his life suddenly became green. 
and so he floored it into the intersection, his mind's eye blind to the three children crossing before him. Tracy read a post from a man in Galveston, Texas, who went to a grocery store and bought up every single roll of aluminum foil they had to offer. The man wrote about rushing home before the authorities could catch him, about plastering the foil all over every inch of wall space, constructing a giant Faraday cage, convinced now that he would be able to keep not just the government rays out, but also the intrusive thoughts. Tracy wondered if she had enough foil in her home to do the same. She read posts from across the Bible Belt from hundreds of parents who claimed that Nitro-3, a turkey medication containing arsenic, would neutralize the ID chips the government had embedded inside their children's bodies at school. And she read about the children that died, surely from the government activating those chips and preventing the Nitro-3 from working. Tracy wondered if she had a metal detector anywhere in her house so she could check herself for chips. The more and more she read, the more and more things made sense. All the random pieces of information in the universe clicked together, and she saw, clear as day, the agendas behind powerful people and powerful governments and big pharma and the lying media. She understood the big picture of what was happening, of how everything she held dear was on the verge of being lost. Tracy sat hunched over for hours, doing her part, her duty to protect those that she loved, sharing valuable information with family and friends about how to keep themselves safe from fatal flus, violent mobs, satellite imaging, medicines implanted with chips, and solar rays controlled by evil people. The ideas, the warnings, the fears, they didn't just spread, they morphed, adapted to every effort to staunch them. Soon, not just Tracy, not just people like her, but major public figures began suggesting maybe there was something to it all. Maybe there was a grand plan that had been in effect for longer than anyone realized. Maybe everyone was under siege. Maybe nothing and no one could be trusted. Every suggestion, public or private, infected another, like a wily virus that modified and replicated and grew stronger with each new host. It spread unchecked without semblance to any sort of traditional disease pattern, infected people who had never come in contact with one another, had never even been in the same state, morphing and warping, unrecognizable each time it was found. The pandemic was rapacious, and even the oceans couldn't contain it. Pockets of the disease popped up across Europe, the Middle East, Africa, Asia. Reports poured in from all around the world about the epidemic with symptoms that were impossible to predict, that was tearing up families and communities. Experts and governments tried to understand how some were immune to it, how the ideas bounced off of them. But in others, like people like Tracy, they took root and grew. Everyone tried to find the source, but there were too many sources. They tried to halt the spread, but there was no way to stop the willing ingestion of poisonous ideas. No way to truly stop people like Tracy who had joined the cause, who were determined to get the word out to let people know about all the secrets that hid behind the veil of normal life, the secrets that they didn't want you to know about. They called it the insanity, and no one could predict who would be safe from it, who would succumb, or which infectious idea they would succumb to. A terrifying conclusion was finally reached, that there was no way to stop the spread, nor to treat it. That's because no one who suffers from the insanity 
knows that they have it, including you. Nighty night, dear listeners. Don't let the nightmares bite. When you think of an epidemic, you probably immediately think of the one that we're living through, COVID-19 and others like it. But you might be surprised to learn that epidemics aren't always of the viral infection variety. Epidemics in which large groups of people begin acting out the same behavior or thinking the same strange way are a real phenomenon. In fact, most of the epidemics mentioned in this story did not emerge from the figment of the imagination of the writer. They were all real events. In the late 15th century, a nunnery became contaminated with an outbreak of inexplicable behavior. Nuns suddenly howling and barking and mewing and even biting. The work they believed of the devil. And in 1518, the dancing epidemic of Strasbourg began with one woman, Mrs. Frau Trophia, and spread to hundreds of others, men, women, and children. By the time it died out, over 400 people had found themselves dancing uncontrollably in the streets, some even dancing themselves to death. Around 150 years before that, a similar scene had unfolded in villages along the Rhine River, where hundreds were overtaken by a compulsion to dance and dance and dance, sometimes until they collapsed and other times until they died. Then there was the laughing contagion that plagued a school in what is now Tanzania in the 1960s and spread to over a thousand people, resulting in three schools being shut down. Today, experts recognize this phenomena as mass psychogenic illness, when there is a, quote, collective occurrence of physical symptoms and related beliefs among two or more persons in the absence of an identifiable pathogen. This can look like so many things, but often manifests in irrational behavior that spreads throughout a community. In other words, it becomes an epidemic. And when a contagion spreads to multiple countries, it's called a pandemic. Given where we are today, stuck between a viral pandemic and a pandemic of shared misinformation, it's a good time to be ever vigilant about getting infected. Tonight's Tale was written by Travis Madden. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicher. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. <laughs> 